Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 47. And this week, we're going to pick up with our study of Acts, and we're going to finish it today. So we had just talked about Paul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31, and now the text shifts back to Peter's continued ministry. The last half of chapter 9 details Peter's healing a lame man, much similar to what he does in chapter 3. And note carefully that Peter does not claim to heal this person, but says that Jesus Christ heals you. He does not claim to be a faith healer. He makes a declaration of healing instead of calling on Jesus to heal. That's an important distinction. Then chapter 9 kind of finishes out with the story of Tabitha, her Aramaic name, or Dorcas, her Greek name. She had a reputation for helping people. And this is the only reference, by the way, to a female um, in the book of Acts who's specifically labeled as a disciple. And Dorcas dies, and Peter is called to the scene, and many of her widow friends were standing around her grieving her loss. And this is the second time widows appear in the book of Acts, by the way, with a problem. And Peter orders everyone out of the room, and he prays and calls her back to life with a command to rise, in language that's very similar to that of Christ in Mark chapter 5, verse 41. So Luke again underscores the power of prayer as Peter intercedes for the woman, and Peter presents a risen Tabitha to the widows, And the same result happens. Many in the area hear about what has happened and believe in Christ because of it. These miracles serve a twofold purpose. They confirm Peter's ministry, and they show that Peter was not afraid to minister in an area that was partially Gentile. So God is slowly moving Peter into the direction of witnessing to the Gentiles and not just the Jews, and that sets the stage for chapter 10. So in chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius' conversion. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and it's interesting to note that the first Gentile that Jesus dealt with in his ministry was also a Roman centurion. And so Luke calls Cornelius a, quote, God-fearer, which is a term that we might also use for people today who believe in God and are religious, but have never put their faith in Christ. And so an angel appears to Cornelius and tells him to fetch Peter, who was in Joppa. And while the men were sent to get Peter, Peter himself also has a vision. And in his vision, he sees something like a bedsheet or a a sail um, that was uh, let down from heaven, and it was full of all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. And the Lord tells Peter to eat, but Peter refuses. It's funny, isn't it? Cornelius sent three people in obedience to God's angel, yet Peter resists the Lord three times, just like he, Jesus said he was going to deny the Lord three times. Well, as Peter was thinking about the vision he had, the Holy Spirit speaks to him directly. It says there in verse 19 of chapter 10, and tells him that he needs to go with these three men. Peter's told to go with them without hesitation, I guess because normally he would hesitate to go anywhere with Gentiles. And so the next day they set out for Cornelius' house. Cornelius Cornelius was seeking after God, but he knew that he didn't have a full understanding. Therefore, God sends Peter to meet the need of Cornelius and give him more light and understanding. And so Peter gets an opportunity to preach the gospel to a captive audience. The only difference is that the, this audience is all Gentile. And notice that Peter's understanding of the gospel message reaching to others has expanded significantly. Peter stresses the universal message of Jesus' ministry as it was for Gentiles as well as for Jews. He is Lord of all. He went about healing all. He is judge of all. And he forgives all who believe in him. 
Well, Peter did not need to call for his hearers to repent, as in the case of the Pentecost sermon. These hearers responded to his message as soon as he gave them enough information to trust Jesus Christ. And when they did so, immediately the Holy Spirit fell on them and baptized them. Note here carefully that spirit baptism, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, took place here without the aid of an apostle's hands or prayer. And through Peter's experience with Cornelius, it is made plain that the norm for this church age for both Jew and Gentile is for the Holy Spirit to be given without delay. Human mediation or other conditions um, or other conditions than simple faith in Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. Now, in the same way, we say that a person receives the Holy Spirit when he is saved. Now, there are four lessons from this conversion of Cornelius as it's very significant in the book of Acts. First, understand that the Christians initially resisted Gentile evangelism. Second, God leads the way into Gentile evangelism, not Peter. Remember, because it was the Holy Spirit that told Peter. Number three, Peter will lead the apostles into Gentile evangelism. He begins it, not Paul. Some people think Paul was the one, but Peter actually started in this area. And fourth, the Jerusalem church accepts the Gentiles without the need to convert to Judaism. And of course, that's the subject of chapter 11, because word of what happens gets back to Judea to the apostles and believers there, and Peter is criticized for being receptive to the Gentiles and having fellowship with them. So Peter explains what had happened, and the complaints, well, they turn into praise. They glorify God for his initiative in granting repentance to the Gentiles. God is seen as bringing this new plan in. And it's interesting to see how the book of Acts presents this new Christian movement. Because from a Christian perspective, Christians were still practicing Jews, but realized that God was instituting a new plan for the world. From a Jewish perspective, Christians were just a religious sect, separated from Judaism. From a Roman perspective, Christianity was just another religion like Judaism. But from Luke's perspective, Luke portrays Christians as having Jewish roots, which to me is the most biblical of all the ways. Now, the second half of chapter 11 shows us that on account of what happens with Peter, the church in Antioch prepares to spread the gospel as well. Those who left Jerusalem because of the persecution after Stephen's speech had scattered themselves into Phoenicia, Cyrus, Cyrene, and Antioch. But Antioch becomes the key city in this chapter and will be a key city for the rest of the book of Acts. Verse 21 of chapter 11 notes um, that now some of these men, specifically from Cyrus and Cyrene, began to preach Jesus to the Hellenists. Before, they were only preaching to the Jews, but now they were expanding their outreach to include Gentiles. And so for the first time, Luke records Jews aggressively evangelizing non-Jews. So the evangelism news gets back to the Jerusalem church, and they send men to investigate and evaluate it. The perfect candidate for the job was none other than Barnabas. And we met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4, and he, has show, and he has shown up and will show up at crucial times in the book of Acts. But can you imagine having the responsibility of giving a recommendation that the church, the whole church, global church, accept salvation for the Gentiles? Barnabas was really a wise choice because he, like these men from Antioch, was born and raised in Cyprus, and he was likely a Hellenist as well. He acted as a pivot point or link between the Hebrew and Hellenistic elements in the church, much dependent on how Barnabas acted or reacted. And Barnabas' response, well, it was one of rejoicing when he observed God's grace at work in Antioch. Well, Barnabas also realized that a ripe harvest was on the cusp when he saw what was happening. And he knew that more work for the Lord could be done in Antioch. And so guess what he does? He goes after Saul or Paul. 
Barnabas brings back Paul from Tarsus to Antioch, where they minister there together for about a year. And Antioch was the place where Christ's followers were first called Christians. Now in chapter 11, excuse me, in chapter 12, the scene shifts back to the church in Jerusalem. Herod begins to persecute this new movement of Christianity, and he has the apostle James, the brother of John, uh, you find his reference in Matthew 20, 23, he has him executed. And then he sets his sights on Peter. James' death is the only apostle's death that is mentioned in the New Testament. He was the second Christian martyr whom Luke identified Stephen being the first. Peter is captured and imprisoned, awaiting to be brought before Herod. But during the night, as believers are praying for Peter's release, Peter is visited by an angel who breaks him out of prison. And when they see Peter, they, all the believers, are dumbfounded that God has answered their prayers. Peter is released, and now he shows up on their doorstep. Because Peter had escaped um, uh, Herod's um, imprisonment, Herod ordered the guards to be put to death. Eventually, at the end of chapter 12, Herod also dies. But even in the midst of all this persecution, the church is still growing. And that leads us into chapter 13, where we return to Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, the first missionary team that is sent out by the specific command of the Holy Spirit. So chapters 13 and 14 chronicles the missionary journeys of this team, going from city to city and preaching the good news of the gospel. But early on in the trip, we're told that John Mark defects and returns home, a point of division that comes up later between Paul and Barnabas. Also in chapter 13 is Paul's first recorded sermon. Ironically, with all the information scripture we have about Paul, this portion is the only example where we have an, the extensive preaching of Paul. And even this message seems to be abbreviated at best. While Paul and Barnabas' message created great interest in the hearts of many people, and they're invited back next week to speak to the Gentiles, but it's the Jews who begin to cause problems for Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas quote from the Isaiah 42 verse 6 passage that says, I have set you, Israel, as a light to the Gentiles that you should be salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is trying to remind the Jewish people of this original commission that God had given them way back in the Old Testament. They were to be a light to the other nations, but by not accepting the message of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas were telling them that they had rejected their commission of being light bearers. These Jews had not recognized the paradigm shift because in the Old Testament, others could come and see how the gospel would be revealed through the nation of Israel. Now in the New Testament, we are called to go and tell others that the gospel is here. You get into chapter 14 and you find Paul and Barnabas uh, traveling to other cities, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, finding similar responses to the gospel message. And then they double back and return back to Antioch and report on their trip. Now, chapter 15 informs us that the debate over accepting Gentiles into the ranks of Christian fellowship was still being debated. One group felt that they should be received by the long-standing tradition of proselyte initiation. However, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas show up to argue the other side, but they don't necessarily argue their point of view as much as they argue that they were simply following God's leading. And so James, the leader of the uh, church in Jerusalem, different than the James that was martyred in chapter 12, agrees with the assessments of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, saying that their actions are confirmed by the Scriptures. However, because of the practical effect of this decision, the Gentiles should make an effort not to offend the Jews, who still need time to process this change. And so this decision is carried to Antioch by means of a four-man team, Barnabas, Saul, um, excuse me, Barnabas, Paul, Silas, and Judas surnamed Barsabbas. And towards the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas 
decide to go on another missionary journey, especially to check on the churches that they had established on the first round. This time, however, Paul does not want to take the defector John Mark, and this causes a split. Barnabas and John Mark go one direction, and guess what? Paul and Silas goes another direction. This disagreement was actually beneficial because now two teams were being sent out to minister to the gospel world. But as you get into chapter 16 and 17, uh, the narrative of Luke follows Paul and Silas's missionary journeys. And in Lystra, um, they pick up another uh, member of their team named Timothy. That's in chapter 16. And Paul had his sights on reaching into Asia, but the Holy Spirit had another direction in mind in the area of Macedonia. In Macedonia, they ministered to places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Then they continue south into the region of Achaia and minister in Athens, where Paul gives his famous Mars Hill sermon, and then in Corinth. And after staying in Corinth for a while, some um, Acts chapter 18 tells us about 18 months, Paul heads back to Jerusalem, taking Aquila and Priscilla with him. But on his way back, he stops by Ephesus briefly to greet those that are there and drops off Aquila and Priscilla before going on to Jerusalem. Now, you might have recognized, and I passed by quickly, several of these um, cities who were named for New Testament books, uh, cities like Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica. Now, typically what happens is that after Paul visits these cities and sets up churches on his missionary journeys with leadership or elders, he writes back to them to check on them and to give them valuable instruction. And so those words of encouragement and instruction are called epistles. And so uh, if we're to, through the timeline of the book of Acts, so Acts happens in, in a period of 30 years, Paul's not just a traveling evangelist, but he's also writing to these cities after he's visited visited them to these churches, um, and they are collected and form many of our New Testament epistles. So when we read those epistles, like when we read First and Second Thessalonians, we must read them in context of the book of Acts, something I will point out when we talk about Paul's epistles in the coming weeks. Now, after Paul makes his visit to Jerusalem in Acts 18, verses 21 and 22, he heads back to Antioch. Now, by the way, also during this time, ministry is still going strong in Ephesus. Remember earlier we noted that Paul dropped off Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, but at the same time, another person of interest had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria, and his name was Apollos. And Apollos was very eloquent, and he began to minister in Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla approach him in order to help Apollos, because the text says that they more accurately explain Jesus to Apollos. Apollos was proclaiming what he knew of the gospel in the Ephesian synagogue, but he didn't have the full gospel story, as we sometimes tease about. Um, so he was missing some elements. So uh, if I can get their names right here, Aquila and Priscilla, they come alongside and help him. So Apollos takes interest, by the way, in going to Corinth to minister. And he is sent there by official letter from the Ephesian church. Now we shift back to Paul in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, Paul begins this third missionary journey, which was basically in Ephesus and some of the surrounding regions. Before he officially started um, a preaching ministry in the city itself, he came across some disciples of John the Baptist who had seemed to be unaware of anything that has happened in the last few years. I guess like John the Baptist, their leader, they were probably living in the desert, away from things. And Paul explains to them the message of the gospel, and they come to faith in Christ. And so Paul's ministry in Ephesus continued to be successful, and many of the citizens that that were involved in idol worship and demonic activity and incantations and spells began to turn to Christ, burning all the books and destroying all their idols. Well, in chapter 19, verse 21, Paul declares that his goal of 
the gospel message is to one day reach Rome. But before going to Rome, he needed to make one more visit to Jerusalem. And shortly after making this claim, some rioting and public opposition start to grow where he's at in Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was suffering economic depression due to the lack of people buying idols. They were blaming Paul and his message of the gospel. Well, after the riot was dispersed, Paul decided to check on the cities and churches in the region of Macedonia, things that he had established on his second missionary journey trip. You see how this works? As Paul goes on a new missionary journey, it's meant to do a lot of checking on the old churches that he had established, making sure they're still strong, because the process of discipleship is continuous. It's not just a one-time event. And so he headed in that direction in chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 3, we're told that he finally arrives and stays in Greece for a period of three months. And this is where most people believe that he wrote the book of Romans for that period of three months that he was in Greece. But continued opposition did not allow him to stay in Greece any longer, and he headed back in the same way that he came. Now take note of verse 7 of chapter 20. On the way back to Asia and the areas of Asia, he stopped in Troas. And in Troas, the first day of the week, Sunday, they gather with other believers to worship and observe the Lord's Supper. So that's the first time we hear of the church meeting on a Sunday. And so after Paul brings back to life a young man who had fallen out of a window, he travels to Asos where he arranged to meet with the Ephesian elders outside of the city, likely because Paul was not a favorite citizen of Ephesus and because he also wanted to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He didn't have time to go in and make the full visit. Now, typically, the book of Acts does not show the emotional side of Paul. Now, some of his epistles do, but the book of Acts doesn't. But in this section, as he addressed the Ephesian elders, it's completely different. His emotional concern, his tears come out for them in chapter 20, verses 18 through 37. As Paul passes on the baton of leadership to them, he boards a ship in chapter 21 and heads towards Jerusalem. In 21.15, Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. And at this point in the narrative of Acts, Luke focuses on the significance and implications of Paul's visit to Jerusalem by slowing down the narrative time. This section of Acts, Acts 21 verses 17 through 23 verse 32, while forming the longest event or episode in the book, only takes two weeks of time. And so for comparison, two years of time is needed for the events in Acts 24 and 25. So Luke kind of slows things down. And Paul and his companions go to visit James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, kind of checking in. And Paul is welcomed by the church and his leaders. And he recounts what God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. They glorified God in response to Paul's report. And they agreed that Paul is doing what is right and in line with Scripture. But... But the church leaders are afraid that many of the Jewish believers are still uncertain about Paul and his motives. And so the group devises a plan to squelch the rumors about Paul being unfaithful to the law. And so Paul agrees and follows through with the plan. Well, the plan almost worked. There was a group of Jews from Asia who recognized Paul and began to cause an uproar in the uh, temple area. The world is a small place, even in the ancient world. And so this mob grabs Paul and throws him out of the temple, and the temple gates are shut. Because of the uproar, the Roman commander, Lysias, couldn't find out what was going on, and so Paul was taken to the barracks for further questioning. But as he is carted off to prison, Lysias gives Paul permission to address the crowd from the temple steps. And in chapter 22, we have that address. It contains the first of three defense speeches that Paul gives. And for all intents and purposes, Paul's speech was a first person account of the events that had happened in his Damascus Road experience, his salvation experience in Acts chapter 9 but a few more details are added. Sadly, though, once Paul claims that God has sent him to the Gentiles, the crowd didn't want to hear any more from Paul, and so he is taken to be, quote, examined by the Roman commander. But before that happens, 
before they try to beat information out of Paul, Paul pulls out his Roman citizen card. Unable to ascertain the Jewish charges against Paul, Lysias decides to turn him over to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, for some answers in chapter 23. Now in chapter 3, we see a smart and sly Paul. He knows he's not going to get anywhere being examined by the Sanhedrin. So he started a riot among them when he brings up the topic of the resurrection. And by raising up the old controversy of whether resurrection is possible, Paul divided his accusers. And Lysias again steps in again and takes Paul back to the barracks. And that night in the barracks, the risen Christ appears to Paul and tells him to take courage because he has a plan for him. And that plan is to reach Rome. Well, a plot to kill Paul is also uncovered. And God protects him from that in 23 verses 12 through 22 as Paul is sent to Felix in Caesarea. And Felix waits until Paul's accusers arrive before hearing Paul's case. So chapter 24 is Paul's second defense speech. This time it's before Felix. Notice Felix's assessment at the end of Paul's speech in chapter 24 verses 22 to 23. Felix has a more accurate knowledge of the way, meaning he is more aware of Christianity than these Jewish leaders give him credit for. This may also suggest that Felix uh, knew very well that the charges against Paul were basically false, but he had to keep political peace with the Jews as well. So while Felix keeps Paul in prison, he holds a private audience with Paul before Felix's Jewish wife, Drusilla. And the impression of the narrative is that Felix is seeking input from someone who is distant from the dispute, but may offer some more expertise on her benefit or, or, or her side of things. Paul is still in prison two years later when, Fe- when Felix excuse me, is replaced by Festus. And Festus, as a new governor of Palestine in chapter 25, had a better reputation for fairness than Felix did. And so Paul appears before Festus and claims that he has done nothing wrong. He has been a good Jew and a good citizen. And Festus is still trying to do the Jews a favor, asking Paul if he's willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. But Paul knows that if he does that, he's going to get killed. Paul is perfectly willing to be judged by Roman law and to die if he has committed some crime worthy of death. Paul's strategy is clearly to remain under Roman jurisdiction, even if he had to go over Festus' head. So in Paul's case, he plays his cards and he appeals to Caesar. And it appeal and excuse me, and it appears that all the officials know full well that Paul has done nothing wrong. Even Agrippa and Bernice, who come to town, get a chance to listen to Paul's defense of his action in chapters 25 and 26. They privately agree that Paul has done nothing worthy of death or prison. And so the scope of Paul's innocence has grown. Now he is innocent even of the grounds for imprisonment. The socially highest people to hear the case declare that Paul is without guilt in this matter. The speech is a legal success, but it changes nothing because Paul said he wanted to go before Caesar, a right of any Roman citizen. All right, now I know my time is basically gone, but I've got just two more chapters to cover, so just stay with me. If we're to collect Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus in chapters 9, 22, and 26, Paul the defendant teaches us that evangelism is not about the results, but about how to faithfully deliver the message. Paul shows us that the message can be naturally brought forth in a variety of settings and circumstances. He also demonstrates that the personal nature of a person's testimony is often the most compelling evidence presented. Paul makes it clear that the results are God's business. We are merely the means of delivering his message. In chapter 27, Paul is put on a ship and it's sent to Rome. I don't have time to go into all the details of the trip, but because of a bad decision on the captain's part, the ship suffers a shipwreck in which God miraculously preserves all 276 souls on board the ship. The crew finds themselves on the island of Malta in chapter 28, where they winter on the island for three months, and Paul continued to do his ministry. And after three months, they set out for Rome. Luke's purpose in recording Paul's ministry in Rome included vindicating God's promises to Paul that he would bear 
bear witness there. And even though a church had already existed there, Paul's ministry in Rome was significant in Luke's purposes because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle to the Gentiles was now able to minister in the heart of the Gentile world. Now, after reading, excuse me, after arriving, Paul meets with the Jewish leaders and they agree to a second meeting where they would have more time to hear his message. Now listen to what the text says here in chapter 28, verses 23 through 28. So a time was set, and on that day a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Now can you imagine being there? Verse 24, some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. Paul says this, the Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Paul speaks like a prophet here, warning them about their rejection. Paul cites the passage to warn the audience that the nation of Israel is failing in the national pattern, or excuse me, is falling into the national pattern of not believing and is reflecting hard-heartedness. Paul is like Isaiah, and the present Jewish community is like the ancient nation. It's a prophetic warning that to refuse to hear the word is to risk reaching a point where it will never be heard again. Now, verse 28 of chapter 28 kind of summarizes the main theme of the book. Having presented the gospel to the Jews in Rome and having witnessed their rejection of it, Paul now focused his ministry again on the Gentiles. This does not mean that he completely forgets all his Jewish ties. When Isaiah ministered and the people did not respond, God sent another prophet after that. God does not give up on his people. Think of the book of Judges, the sin cycle. Time and time again, the people sin, ask for forgiveness, and started afresh again. Israel still has a place in the heart of God and still has a future role in God's kingdom. But at the present time, the focus of God's people is to those who have not heard, that is, the Gentiles. All right, I'm finished. (laughs) That finishes the book of Acts. I think you get a break in reading, a day off uh, this week, maybe a day off to catch up um, or begin starting. And we start afresh next week on the book of Romans. So, It's going to get a little tough next week on the book of Romans, so hopefully you've come prepared to listen next week and to study the scriptures because it's going to get hard. But take heart, though. The book of Romans is a fantastic book. There's so much truth there, so much doctrine, so much theology that men spend their lifetime studying. And that's Paul's magnum opus. That is his magnificent work that we are forever grateful for. But as we've come through Acts, you've seen the story of Paul from beginning to end and all the apostles. And guess what? The ministry of the church continues even to today because God's work is not finished. It continues even till today. So if you have any questions... Email them to me at BibleReading at LNBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.